Hey, I'm Jonathan Hill here at the Warner Theater about to watch the NPR Politics Live Show. My name is Elliot and I'm here for the Politics Podcast recording for the fourth time. I'm Darren and this is the Politics Podcast and this is my fourth time here. Hi, I'm Lisa. I'm here for the Politics Podcast at the Warner Theater. This podcast was recorded at... This podcast was recorded at... This podcast was recorded at... On Friday, November 8th. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast, live! I'm Tamara Keith, I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow, I cover the campaign. I'm Asma Khalid, I also cover the campaign. I'm Aisha Rosto, I also cover the White House. (laughs) And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. So we are here in Washington, D.C. at the Warner Theater, and we are not alone. (laughs) NPR is partnering with WAMU for this live show, and we want to say a huge thank you to them for supporting us. So on our show, we have a tradition uh, that when someone drops out of the race, we play a little number from a band you may have heard of, In Sync, Bye Bye Bye. Bye Bye Bye. Um, and we've now done that more than half a dozen times. And I sort of thought that that was the mode we were in, saying mm-hmm. goodbye to people. Um, and we don't even have a song for hello. There's no like, hello, hello, hello. Mm-hmm. Yes. You can do Baby Shark? <laughs> <laughs> Lionel Richie song that there says hello, is. hello. Uh, that's like is it me you're one, waiting for? Adele. <laughs> Someone's singing that now, right? Like to the campaign. Right, someone is singing that now, <laughs> or maybe singing it right now. Um, yeah, here's the thing. We're less than 90 days away from the Iowa caucuses, and all of a sudden, Scott Detrow, there is a new potential likely probably candidate. Yeah. There's a lot of New York City mayors in our lives right now. There's... <laughs> I thought we got rid of one. There's former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who's, he's in part two of the show. Um, (laughs) There is New York City Mayor Mike uh, Bill de Blasio. Who we said bye-bye-bye to. We did, but now we might be saying hello to former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. He today filed to run for president in the state of Alabama. Not one of the key early swing states we spend a lot of time on but a state that had a filing deadline that is today. He is thinking of running. He has not fully decided to run for president. And this seems to be kind of the type of campaign that you would see, you know, not since like the late 70s of he's thinking of getting in the race. He's not sure. He has, uh, his advisors have told a few outlets he's not even going to show up in New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, Nevada. He's going to wait and see how things go and maybe hop in around Super Tuesday. Sort of the white knight plan, ride in on a horse, right at the right moment. I mean, you know, there's always this flirtation with billionaires uh, or people of some means in either party because they can meet these filing deadlines, which are really onerous. I mean, you have to go state by state to fill out uh, all of the requirements, and it takes a lot of money and a lot of organization. And if you have that kind of money right away, you can just dump it all and say, okay, go. 
So, Asma, what is the theory of his case? Like, what is he offering as a candidate? Where would he fit in in this field? So his theory of the case is that there is this moderate contingency of the electorate that would back uh, a candidate like Michael Bloomberg. Now, if I were to poke some holes in that theory of the case, I would say um, he needs to win a Democratic primary in order to get through. And right now, in order to win a Democratic primary, you need a whole bunch of white liberal voters, and you need a lot of support from African Americans. Michael Bloomberg, as you all might remember, um, was sort of controversially linked to a, I should say, a controversial policy called stop and frisk. And this is a policy that he would inevitably have to defend if he jumps into the race. But look, I think the biggest thing to me is that whether or not he gets into the race or not, this is a pretty public rebuke, a pretty public vote of no confidence in Joe Biden's candidacy. That's what he's saying. Yeah, and Scott, you were talking uh, to uh, Ed Rendell, who is uh, a, a Biden ally. He's a Biden ally, but not a Biden ally who follows the script of talking points, which is why he's great to talk to. <laughs> and he, uh, he worked a lot with Mike Bloomberg when he was governor of Pennsylvania, and Bloomberg was New York mayor on a lot of things, so I called him up to ask what he thinks. And he said, I love Mike Bloomberg. If, uh, if Joe wasn't in the race or if Joe did terribly, I'd be for Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> and he thought that Bloomberg was doing exactly this, seeing how Joe Biden does and being kind of a moderate establishment backup plan if Joe Biden does falter, because Mike Bloomberg is very worried about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. He's got a personal reason to be worried about Elizabeth Warren, because according to the uh, wealth tax calculator she tweeted at him last night, he would be paying... <laughs> $3 billion a year in taxes if her wealth tax went into uh, effect. But he has like... 50, <laughs> but he has like $52 billion, so... He's, he's got some got, billions to he's, spare. He's got to, but could you really just uh, swap out a Biden and the, the constituency that is for Biden uh, with Michael Bloomberg? I mean, as you were saying... African-American voters might have some issues with that. But even if you, you think of Biden as going for this every man, you had Michael Bloomberg when he was in New York. Wasn't he trying to ban big gulps and you couldn't get <laughs> soda and all these? Are you going to take the big gulp from my cold, dead hands? <laughs> I, I, love, I love my Coke. <laughs> Coca-Cola. That was a very Coca controversial policy, too. <laughs> And, and, and not in a small quantity of ounces. No, 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 no. So, I mean, like who's going to go 40 for 40 ounces this? or bust. Like, with the big, like, <laughs> I dozen mean, they got like 64, 128. <laughs> now you sound like Sarah Palin. Really? Remember Wait. when she went to CPAC and held a this. big gulp yeah. up and said, now I'm going to take this away. But look, I, I just don't, <laughs> I don't know. You know, Somebody out there I knows just, what you're talking I, about. I just don't know where the space is in the Democratic primary for a billionaire while a party that's lurching left, a centrist billionaire, um, you know, it's a, it's a really difficult sort of thing to see when you also have, by the way, you know, all of this talk of the consternation and the hand-wringing about the Democratic field is coming from the sort of elite uh, establishment democratic lane. When you ask actual democratic voters how they feel about this field, you know, 75, 85% in many polls saying that they're satisfied with this field and you've had these candidates campaigning for months. For the Everybody. podcast listening audience at home, we have now put up a slide with all of the candidates. Um, there are 16 of them. It's a lot. Yeah. It is, but it is fewer <laughs> than last time. So. But are there really 16? We topped out at 24. Yeah. Yeah. 
And we could go back up to 17, I guess. So, um, you know, I want to pull back for a moment and travel back in time to a simpler time a few months ago when this was in the early stages of the primary. And there was this sense early on that Democrats were so incredibly engaged that that this was going to be a nationalized primary, that, that Iowa and New Hampshire weren't going to matter. I mean, I guess this is sort of the theory that Bloomberg has, um, that Iowa and New Hampshire wouldn't matter because it was such a nationalized race. And you got the sense that Iowa and New Hampshire were sort of sitting back saying, oh, they say that every four years. Um, and all of a sudden, now people say they're moving to Iowa. So what happened? I don't know who really believe that. I mean, if they did, you know, it, they haven't really... There were really... some campaigns that did. They reevaluated since. You know, I don't... The campaigns that are moving to Iowa. You particular. know, I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, every four years, people pay attention to national polls, and national polls matter far less than the early state polls. And the reason for that is because of the kind of momentum that can be uh, swept in. You know, we'll talk about Rudy Giuliani more in the show for some other reason, but he also ran for president in 2008 you might remember, where he led national polls for months and months and months and spent more than $60 million to win one delegate because of his Florida, Florida, Florida strategy. He led in Florida, led in Florida, led nationally, lost Iowa, lost New Hampshire, lost South Carolina, and he was toast. Well, and right now there is some differentiation that the national polls are showing something different than, than say, the Iowa polls. Yeah, and I think uh, Asma and I both were in Iowa a lot recently, and, and Asma saw this too, that um, I think the biggest difference there is that Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, another city, not New York, South Bend, Indiana, has um, incredible organization, incredible resources, in incredible enthusiasm and volunteer uh, efforts out in Iowa. He has spent a ton of time in Iowa, and you have seen in poll after poll recently that he is really competitive there, and there is an outside, a very outside chance that he could win, but he is doing better than Joe Biden. He is doing better than a lot of more uh, name-brand national candidates in Iowa, and if he were able to win in Iowa, I think that dispels a lot of the concern of can this 30-something mayor of a relatively small city be a national candidate? And, and on the same token, I would say, I mean, that's sort of the organizational strength is what we've also been seeing from Elizabeth Warren's campaign. You know, for a long time, I think there were questions at the beginning of this race about, is she too progressive? Is she too sort of left and radical? And sure, some, some folks still think those things about her, but she has been amazingly effective at organizing in some of the early states. I think, Scott, you've reported on this in Nevada, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, and those are the candidates that we've seen rise up in these early polls because they just have really good operations, volunteers, staff working, knocking on doors, calling people, just doing sort of volunteer training events in these places. And if you're not doing those things, then you just don't have as much of an attraction in some of those early states. Well, and can we explain why in particular in Iowa organization matters? This, you know, the, the caucuses are this weird thing, which until you see them, they are hard to explain even after you've seen them. It turns out it's hard to explain. <laughs> but, I mean, people go to gymnasiums and other large rooms and try to persuade their neighbors to support their candidate. And then there's like shuffling into corners. And, and this is also happening in like the bitter cold of Iowa. So you actually have to feel fairly passionate about your candidate 
to get up. I mean, I would. I feel like you have to be fairly, like, fairly cat passionate to get up out of the cold and actually show up on a cold day in Iowa. The thing that I'm watching in Iowa is the 15% threshold. And for those of you who don't know, when you go to these corners, you have to have at least 15% after that first vote for them to then resort and for your delegates to count. So when you have a four-person race, like we have essentially right now in Iowa, there are a couple candidates who are perilously close to that 15% line. You know, Joe Biden, for example, in a couple of these polls has been at 14%. And if you're to get 15 in one place, 14 in another, you know, you're going to see a lot of really janky kind of results when it comes to, you know, who's able to get their delegates through to the next round. And this is why Bernie Sanders' campaign feels very confident, because he has had a consistent... He has been in a field of steady polls, the steadiest. He has been hanging around 20%, by and large, with some exceptions, since the beginning of this race, consistently the number two poller, consistently the number one fundraiser. His campaign has spent a lot of money on ads so far in Iowa and just announced they're going to spend a ton more on TV ads. And he's got a track record of four years ago, even though many of his supporters may be going elsewhere, he still has these core supporters. And they feel like once you factor in 15%, they they are past 15% with their hardcore supporters, and they can do pretty well. And we should be clear that 15% isn't just 15% in the state. You've got to get 15% in various congressional districts. So that, that, that's a decently high threshold. In every gymnasium, yeah. in every library, in every one of those, those places that they do this, you've got to get 15%. So would it be possible, this idea that you could lose Iowa and that you could lose New Hampshire and then say go to South Carolina. Are you and thinking of a it, candidate in particular? There, there might be a candidate, uh, <laughs> Biden, uh, who obviously has a lot of support with African Americans who are not key in Iowa and New Hampshire, but will play a huge role in South Carolina. Yeah. It, does it? Can you lose those two I mean, I and then go into South Carolina so, and finish strong? So sorry, I think that the theory of that is being tested by Joe Biden. To me, the question is, how significantly do you lose Iowa and New Hampshire? If you are in second place in both of those states and then you, you know, win South Carolina by 30 percentage points, then you're golden. That's fine. You're kind of talking about the Hillary Clinton path the nomination in 2016. She won Iowa, but, but by... barely. And if you were Hillary Clinton going... That was effectively, in terms of momentum, in terms of the story, in terms of the resource disparity, that was like effectively a loss in the way that it was covered. Got clobbered by Sanders in New Hampshire and then won in South Carolina big and turned it around and started racking up enormous enormous win after enormous win on her way to the nomination. I you think know, if she had actually lost Iowa, it would have been different. What was the margin? Uh, I think it was like a coin flip in one of those gymnasiums somewhere. <laughs> it, was, it was essentially a tie. Yeah. There were actually some coin flips. I mean, the thing is, it's true, right? We talk about Iowa, and they always talk about the tickets out of Iowa. And what they're talking about is placing first, second, or third, win, place, or show in horse racing, right? And, you know, if you're fourth, that really doesn't help your momentum. It really hurts your momentum. And, you know, African-American voters are very practical. You know, Barack Obama was losing by a whole lot of votes, by a whole lot of percentage points to Hillary Clinton in 2008 through most of that uh, campaign until he won Iowa. And when I was in South, in South Carolina in 2008 and I would talk to African-American voters, they would say, look, if Lily White Iowa could vote for a black man, then fine, he can win. So, you know, these candidates have something to prove. The issue is if Biden finishes fourth in Iowa and black voters decide, all right, this guy can't win, where do they go? 
and in the in the current top four, I don't know if there's a clear answer in a way that when the field was broader before, I mean, you had a lot of campaigns. Kamala Harris's campaign in particular was kind of blunt about saying, you know, we expect that we could pick up support from from African American voters if they if they step away from from Joe Biden. Asma, one thing that I know we've talked a lot about in the newsroom that I feel like is 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 an interesting thing to talk about is when you were last in Iowa, how hard were the Pete Buttigieg people trying to say? He's kind of like Obama. He's kind yeah. of the Obama of 2020. <laughs> the, Check this it out. is a narrative that you hear Obama. all the time. I mean, I've, I've heard it in such crude ways to say, oh, he's like Obama's gay younger brother. Their words, not mine. Wait, wait, wait. Somebody from the campaign said that? No, or no, just no. Like a random this is a random person. Yeah. Not, not, not yeah. a campaign staffer. Um, but my point is, is, you know, yeah, like ahead of this Liberty and Justice dinner, which was last week in Iowa, it's the big dinner where Barack Obama gave this electrifying speech in 2008 that kind of catapulted him uh, into winning the Iowa caucuses. Pete Buttigieg's campaign was essentially setting up his performance at this speech in much the same way, highlighting how significant this speech had been for Barack Obama. I was there and I would say, you know, look, Pete Buttigieg had a strong night there. Um, did he give the type of speech that Barack Obama did? Did he walk away from that night in the same way? I would say no. You know, but did he still convince a whole lot of people who might have been skeptical about him that he has potential? I think he has increasingly been able to do that. To me, though, the overarching question, you know, to what you were saying, Aisha, is could somebody lose Iowa, lose New Hampshire, and win South Carolina? I think this is a question that the Democratic Party is going to need to wrestle with because increasingly the problem for them is their electorate really doesn't look that much like Iowa and New Hampshire. And we talk about this every four years, but it's increasingly becoming a problem as the party is changing. Well, look, I think the big argument for Buttigieg when you're looking at the race is it's not a great place to be the front runner in November, a few months before uh, that caucus, because what happens is now Elizabeth Warren is facing all this scrutiny that she hadn't faced previously based on Medicare for All, right? And Medicare for All as a replacement to private health insurance as she has put out her own plan now and can't use Bernie Sanders as a heat shield anymore. Now she has to defend that plan. She has to defend the cost. And you're hearing a lot of Democrats from suburban areas saying, pump the brakes here. This goes too far. The objective needs to be to beat President Trump, not to try to institute something that can't pass in Congress anyway and is going to turn off the middle of the country. If the, she loses that argument over the next few months or scares off enough Democratic voters who want to beat Trump and think she's not electable, there's a path for Buttigieg to rise in a place like Iowa. All right, we are going to leave it here right now. When we come back, impeachment on the road to 2020. Support for NPR and the following message come from Personal Capital, offering online financial tools to give you a 360-degree view of all your accounts in one place. Want to talk? Personal Capital has registered advisors who can help you invest smarter and plan for retirement. Download the Personal Capital app or start investing today at personalcapital.com. Personal Capital. Invest with logic. Plan with heart. Wake up to a fresh take on the day's news with Up First every weekday morning and now Saturdays at 8 a.m. Eastern, too. Ten minutes is all you'll need to start your day informed. And now you can listen six days a week. I'm Scott Simon. And I'm Lulu Garcia-Navarro. Up first to start your weekend from NPR News. And we're back. 
We are a daily podcast, as you may have heard. We've gone daily. Uh, and all week, we, we love it too, all week we have been covering the latest developments from the transcripts being released. But tonight, we're going to take a step back and focus on a couple big picture questions about impeachment. And the first is this. Tam, Aisha, you have spent a lot of your time this week reading transcripts. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. A lot of them. What big picture things did we learn from all of the document dumps this week that we didn't know before the documents start came, coming out? What changed the story? I, the big, I think one of the biggest things was you had European Union Ambassador Gordon Sondland. He changed his, or he updated his memory was refreshed. His memory was Suddenly. refreshed for his testimony, and it turns out that he had told a Ukrainian official uh, that, uh, in fact, money was being held up um, and that they expected to get investigations in, in return. There's a word for that. Quid. Three. Quid. Pro quo. Ooh, I have a very hard time. With, like I have it's a very hard, hard time. With this. For you. It's, it's as hard as Beto O'Rourke. Now he drops out, and now, and now we have and now we have quid pro quo or whatever. <laughs> so and his his, yes. his memory is miraculously refreshed. Yes. He he now recalls something that many lawmakers have thought was all along would be the most damning thing if there's a clear trail that the military aid was hung up. Yeah. Tam, what else? So for me, for two weeks, I have been de digging into the whistleblower complaint and annotating like every sentence in it, which has been uh, a, a task. And today, I got the last element, the last element of the whistleblower complaint, the last thing that we hadn't seen in publicly released testimony, which... Um, Alexander Vindman, uh, the NSC official that, that dealt with Ukraine, um, he talked about how the transcript, the rough call log, was moved to a secure system. That was the last piece of the whistleblower complaint that I had not been able to find in other, either public statements or public testimony. So let's just say the whistleblower complaint is corroborated. So yeah. when President Trump and his allies say, this whistleblower, he wasn't there, he's not coming forward, out him, that's, that's kind of irrelevant at this point, right? Like all the key facts. All the key facts are there in testimony from people whose names we do know. People who yeah. are on the record yeah. with decades of experience who have come forward to say that these are the things that happened, that they saw happen, and that they were involved with. I mean, if you think about the Sondland testimony, Sondland only amended his testimony because there were other witnesses who testified and said things that were different than what Sondland had said. So then he said, oh, I do now recall that. And you know why he recalls that? Because it's under threat of perjury. When you go before Congress and you testify, you know, you're, you, you could go to jail if you lie. And how many people got caught up in the Mueller investigation and wound up being penalized because of that? Roger Stone is on trial right now for yeah. misleading Congress. Domenico, uh, President Trump thinks in terms of TV pictures more than anybody else. TV matters. Podcasts matter too, but TV matters more. Yeah. And next week, this goes from people behind closed doors and statements being leaked and people like us speed reading transcripts and relaying them to live hearings. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the big thing. It's, you know, it's not 
what they're going to say. I mean, we've read thousands of pages now of what they have said. I don't know that there's anything different that they're going to say, but they have picked three particular people because of the strength of their testimony that are going to now say this on camera, in public, and are going to face Republican supporters of President Trump who are going to try to pick apart their stories. And they're champing at the bit to do that. So you have these individuals who, how they stand up, how they're able to deliver this message could go a long way in either shifting public opinion more in favor of the impeachment inquiry or going the other direction. But Aisha, I feel like we have done live special coverage of all of these big hearings. We have done podcasts on all of them. But I feel like so many times we've gone into this thinking, oh my gosh, this could be the thing that really changes the political dynamics. Michael Cohen, Robert Mueller. Yeah, James Comey. James Comey. Yeah. Is there, is there, I mean, how much of a reality could it be that these hearings come and go and the political dynamics are exactly the same? I think the political dynamics, the overall kind of arc of it are probably set in, but there's just this idea, I think, that what you have now with what's going on with this impeachment inquiry, that it shows that, like, this is just negative news for President Trump, regardless of where you sit. Republicans in Congress don't want to be on this. They don't want to be having to defend the president this way. They will do it. But every time they're doing that, they're not making a case for President Trump getting reelected. They're not making a case for policy. And what we have seen is that President Trump is not one who is going to sit back and kind of just uh, keep, you know, just be not be out of the drama. There's going to be drama. Like, and, and this and is he, more of it. He's going to armchair quarterback the defense yes. that is being provided by his Republican allies in Congress. But let's be really clear. We're talking about like 7% of the country that's persuadable. Like, I, and I'm not... Seven, I'm, like, I'm, seven. I'm, I, seven. Like, I'm not... Li I, literally, folks, I'm not exaggerating, right? Like that China, sounded that's like a, a little... <laughs> I feel like that's even in that the was a, That was an attempt. Yeah, well, no, but like, like Pew, Pew had found yeah. that there's like 7% of the country that is essentially could go one way or the other. And I think we have seen movement in the polling, and it's from independents, right? On every single issue, I've said this many times, but on every single issue since the president took office, independents have tracked with Democrats except on impeachment. They have uh, over and over again said that they're against an impeachment inquiry, they're against impeaching the president until about three weeks ago when it, suddenly that flipped and we saw a 19-point net change in our polling and other polls that came out where independents suddenly now are in favor of the impeachment inquiry and that's a huge shift for Republicans, and that's why you see them on their back foot trying to come up with every other different argument that you hear. You just have to listen to Lindsey Graham to figure out which direction they're going. Asma, how many different ways does this affect that other thing that's going on, the 2020 primary where we're months out from voting beginning? <laughs> Uh, gosh, I mean, in so many ways. I mean, at this point, if you think about it, so we've got six candidates, right, who are running, who would essentially be jurors uh, in the Senate, if this is, and you've reported on this, Scott, and like, look, if, if this goes to a vote in the Senate, you've then got this happening in January, a month ahead of the February caucuses, and we were just talking about Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren, that would be a blessing for someone like Pete Buttigieg, because someone like an Elizabeth Warren just wouldn't have the capacity to be on the ground campaigning 
in January in Iowa if she needs to be. a six-day-a-week trial. Yeah. Mandatory attendance, right, And so, I mean, this this is a sort of complicated thing for some of the candidates who are running. I think the other bigger question to me, and I know, Domenico, you were talking just about the polling, is that when you talk to voters in Iowa, I just spent a long stretch. I was in Iowa for pretty much the last week or so, and Every time you talk to people, I was at a Biden event, I was at Warren events, I was at you know this big liberty and justice dinner. I don't recall a single person I met bring up impeachment as a factor for their vote or even a factor of what they were plausibly considering in terms of their decision making. So to though, me, maybe it's just a non-issue for Democrats, but it's not what they're talking about. Though is there a distinction between any of the key candidates on impeachment, how they would approach impeachment? Is that something where you could say, well, I'm for impeachment and therefore I lean more one candidate than the other? I don't think I've heard that at all. From there's anybody, no daylight, right? right? There's, like there's no yeah. difference. I mean, Elizabeth Warren will say that she was for impeachment, you know, as soon as she read the Mueller report, that she was for it before some of the others. I don't think that it matters. I mean, I don't know if you all watched the last debate, but we we heard about impeachment, and it sort of was like line by line. You pretty much heard it was the, the, probably to me the one issue where we heard the most unanimous agreement amongst Democrats. On. So getting Trump out of office is essentially a control factor for Democrats. I mean, <laughs> so I guess it's the point of all of their efforts at the moment. Right. Though. I mean. They all agree on it, so then they can talk about the sort of utopia they want to create. Yeah. I mean, to me, the interesting question, though, and I'd be curious what you guys, Aisha and Tam, think, because you cover Donald Trump, is the factor to which this is galvanizing his base of supporters. And this is something I think anecdotally you sort of see, right? But but at his rally the other day, there were you know supporters of his wearing these T-shirts that said "Read the transcript." It's a line that he says. Well, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that they didn't buy those shirts in a store. No, and 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 That's some top-notch really... investigative journalism there, Tam. <laughs> well, funny story. I have sent multiple emails to the campaign asking where they got the shirts. And I keep saying, like, let me move this up to the top of your inbox. Uh, I haven't gotten a response yet. Not selling these in the Trump store? They they might be. I would think they are. I was looking at the Christmas ornaments. I may have missed that. (laughs) I did see the Christmas ornaments, yes. (laughs) But more broadly, I mean, you're both covering the, yeah. that, that other campaign yeah. happening right now, Trump's re-election campaign. How is the campaign engaging with this? Well, uh, they're saying read the transcript, but obviously, even when Trump tweets read the transcript, he never tweets a link to the actual transcript. And you see that they could put the transcript on the shirts. I mean, I'm just saying, like, they, you know, I mean, they're saying it like they could have put it on the shirts. You, I mean, people could have read it on the you shirts. It's actually, it's a lot of white space. They could have put it on the shirts, but that, they didn't. Fascinating side note uh, about it's search like the engine Declaration optimization. Of Independence. I have been searching the transcript occasionally in the last few days because I need it. I Google transcript. Um, the White House has actually, through its search engine optimization, done all caps transcript exclamation exclamation exclamation. So it comes up as the first item when you Google oh, so it. So the White House comes. The up. White the House, House is like pushing website. the transcript yeah, yeah, in its search engine optimization. Okay, sorry, that was random. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think that. What you see at these rallies, or when I've gone to a rally since uh, impeachment happened, is that, I mean, the people there are obviously fired up for President Trump. They think this is all Democrats just trying to come after Trump because that's what they do. Um, But there's also, even some people who are are Trump supporters did say uh, at the Minnesota rally that I was at, said that they weren't really happy with the call. Um, they, they They weren't really pleased with it, but they still backed Trump. They didn't think he should be impeached. 
and so, I mean, I, he's not going to lose his base over this at all. I, I think in recent elections that we just had this week, we didn't really see in Kentucky and other places, I mean, Domenico, we didn't really see this kind of backlash against Democrats over impeachment, did we? No, and I think that's a key point. I mean, I think that was the first test in Kentucky and in Virginia and other places, whether or not, as Republicans were promising, that this would be some kind of third rail for Democrats, that pushing forward with impeachment would mean that rural Trump-based voters would come out in droves because they're so angry and irritated with this. In fact, that's not what happened at all. In fact, we saw the opposite. We saw that uh, Democratic voters in urban areas very fired up, came out in big numbers, and those suburban areas are still being won by Democrats, and that is a giant warning sign for Republicans heading into next so, year. So, can I ask you about that, though, because I think we saw a similar result in the 2018 midterms, and I've just been cautious about over-interpreting those results because at the end of the day, Donald Trump is not on the ballot, yeah, and what I always true. hear from his supporters is it's about him, um, and there's a, a clear defense when they want to when they want to defend him right they don't see necessarily him to be synonymous always with the party i think that's absolutely true and i think that you can't look at 2018 versus 2016 or 20 you know it has to be analogous to 2014 but when you look at overall enthusiasm for example among democratic voters uh, gallup just came out with new data this week that showed them at similar level levels if not higher to 2008 compared to uh, what it is today. It's more, almost 20 points higher than what it was in 2016. So if you've got those kinds of numbers and you've got a democratic, you know, sort of, uh, you know, wave of people who are staying engaged, who are voting in special elections, who are voting in off-year elections, you know, those things are indicators of what the turnout could be next year. Um, and, you know, I look, there's a lot of time left to go. You're not going to, I think all signs point to, you know, still a close election where turnout matters, right? <laughs> but all of the signs that we have right now are that Democrats are fired up and there's no evidence that impeachment has fired up Republican uh, rural voters. All right, we're going to take one more break. You are listening to the NPR Politics Podcast live at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Google. From Connecticut to California, from Mississippi to Minnesota, millions of American businesses are using Google tools to grow online. The Grow with Google initiative supports small businesses by providing free digital skills workshops and one-on-one -on -one coaching in all 50 states, helping businesses get online, connect with new customers, and work more productively. Learn more at google.com grow. When a whale dies in the ocean and its body falls down to the seabed, something amazing happens. When they hit that deep sea floor, it's like Thanksgiving. Whale Falls, the science of a deep sea feast. This week on Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. And we're back. And now it is time for our favorite part of the show, Can't Let It Go. Where we all share something that we just cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Aisha. Yes. So this week, um, what I cannot let go of, it actually doesn't have to do with Kanye West or Beyonce or anything like that. But it has to do with the Roger Stone trial, which we've mentioned. Roger Stone is, was, was a friend of the president. 
I mean, yeah. Could sure. still be a friend. Not, it's not really clear. But uh, <laughs> he is now on trial for, among other things, intimidating witnesses and threatening people. And one of the people that he threatened was this guy named Randy Credico. Randy Credico. <laughs> uh, and Randy Credico uh, has a dog named Bianca. It's his therapy dog, and he takes it with him everywhere. He took it with him to court, to the grand jury, uh, before uh, all this happened with Roger Stone or before this actual trial started. But today he was talking about basically part of why he was there is because Roger Stone threatened Bianca the dog. And I think we, we have, and this is thanks to Tim Mack, our colleague Tim Mack, he actually ran into Randy last year and he got a picture of him with Bianca because he always has his dog with him. And apparently, Roger Stone sent Randy an email and said, you, I, he called him a rat and a stoolie, I think. And then he's stoolie? Like a stool pigeon. Like a stool pigeon. Gonna, and he yeah. said, I will take your dog or your dog oh. will be gone. <laughs> now. <laughs> but anyway, today Randy said in Roger Stone, well, he's really testifying against Roger Stone, but he did say in Roger Stone's defense that he did not think that Roger Stone actually would have hurt his dog. Um, <laughs> he thought that threat. that was hyperbole. Mm. <laughs> Roger Stone did also threaten to kind of kill him. He said he was a dead man. They didn't really get into that, but he said he did not think he was actually going to kill Bianca. He probably would have kept Bianca. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was so mean. Who, who threatens a dog? Like, it's just me. Roger yes. Stone. Well, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. Alleg this is all allegedly. Yes. <laughs> Domenico, what can't you let go of? Well, you know, pouring through a lot of these transcripts this week, you know, one testimony in particular has stood out for a while, and that's of acting ambassador William Taylor to the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Um, he's delivered some of the most explosive testimony uh, of anybody. He's very credible. He was appointed by George W. Bush to be Ukraine ambassador. He was handpicked by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He delivered a, a raft of things that seemed particularly damning to the president um, up and down. That's not what I can't let go of. It's this nugget that was in his testimony, in, you know, buried inside all of this explosive stuff, was how he tried to you know, communicate back to Washington uh, to see what the foreign policy was supposed to be. And he's essentially getting uh, you know, the Muzak from you know, the bank. And it's because the NSC, the National Security Council, at that time, he said, was consumed with trying to purchase Greenland. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. I was like, really? That story was true from a few, I mean, we, they said it was true, but they were seriously looking at it, right? Well, the president confirmed it. The president confirmed it, and they, they were seriously studying it. <laughs> yep. and, this, and so he said, they, yeah. Hey, Finland, what does Finland think of that? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. Asma, what um, about you? <laughs> So, um, 
Anybody who heads to Iowa much knows that if you're a candidate, you've got to be pretty careful when you eat food. This is sort of a thing that a lot of people watch, and they want to see, you know, are you, like, slicing up your pizza and eating it with a fork and knife, because nobody does do that. that. Um, in any case... Though Trump sliced his pizza, and look at him now. <laughs> <laughs> that is, like, the reasoning that everybody has given over the last two years for why they shouldn't have to, like, follow everything else. Just carve it up the pizza. It's not okay! In any case, food etiquette is a big deal, especially when you're in Iowa. So um, Eater, and if you all know about Eater blog, they have like good, you know, food recommendations, whatnot, and restaurants. So they had reached out to a bunch of campaigns to see if they could follow anybody, you know, and watch essentially what their, this candidate eats 24-7, take pictures of them. And apparently there was really only one campaign, they say, that bit at this idea, and that is Pete Buttigieg's campaign. So he was followed around, trailed by Eater, get, took pictures of... And the whole premise of this story was like, you know, look how food has been disastrously, like, perilous for candidates. Well, it turned out for Pete Buttigieg, there was like a bit of a slip to, I don't know if we have a picture. Do we have a picture? Oh, there it is. Yeah. No, but Buttigieg here. You can't really see the most important part. Yeah, so Pete Buttigieg here, you can't tell exactly, but he is eating a a cinnamon roll that he cut up with a knife. And then it's starting to eat like they're like chicken fingers or something. Chicken wings. (laughs) eating it like a chicken wing. But but if this was chicken, it would be acceptable. But this is a cinnamon roll. But I was thinking about this. He cut it all up in But I was thinking about this. And in his defense, so Pete Buttigieg has like a very common campaign uniform. It's his white button-down shirt. And I was thinking, like, how would one eat a cinnamon roll with a white button-down and not actually destroy the white button-down? It doesn't matter. It's not a meatball. It's a cinnamon roll. Cinnamon rolls are tricky. You stick the fork in and you can't. Kind of like you use the fork to yeah. cut a, off a piece and then eat it that way, or so, you could pick you it up with your in. hand. You could, and then that. a voter comes up and says, "Mayor Pete, hey, nice to meet you." And oh, it's very sticky. Very sticky. So as you can see, eating food is quite perilous when in Iowa. But look, I will say, I, I credit him for giving someone full access to his food. Yeah. Could you imagine if someone followed us on the campaign trail? It'd be like, fries, coffee, more coffee. <laughs> coffee. The, so, one of the weirdest things um, for me this year was going to the Iowa State Fair and following all the candidates around, which would be like weird to begin with. But because so many people are following this race, these candidates were all walking around the state fair with like 50 of us in a circle, like this this like roving planet with like an asteroid belt, <laughs> going through the fair and like knocking into people. And they go up to this poor person who's like at the ice cream stand, like, oh, okay, hey, everybody. And then eating with all of us like up in their face. It was bizarre. I feel like they'd be so uncomfortable to eat in that way yeah. and yeah high pressure stakes well so you know. yeah if he doesn't win Iowa we know why <laughs> did you say that on purpose it was a high, high pressure what steaks. Steaks. steaks is that I like sous vide except under cut. pressure <laughs> all right uh, so for my can't let it go I need a little audience participation um, I think Barbara Sprunt our producer is out there somewhere um, do we have any volunteers to come up on stage we have, we have a volunteer uh, who is going to try to get up on... Uh, we have two volunteers who are trying to get up on stage. Um, this could take a minute. So, Scott, um, could you please do your Bernie Sanders impression now? Well, you forgot to ask me my can't let it go. Oh. Well, perfect. Oh. Scott. <laughs> Luckily, it's very quick. We are celebrating an anniversary today. Aw. Four years ago tomorrow, we posted our very first episode of the NPR Politics Podcast. Oh. 
we have, you could say we have completed our first full term. <laughs> yes. I, I feel think... that this relationship uh, has gone on really long because I couldn't remember this anniversary. I honestly thought it was side. five years for a while and had to be corrected. But yeah, four years ago yesterday, we've gone four years. Uh, we have gone more than 500 episodes and we are clearly going to be going for a while longer. I don't think we run for re-election, but you know, we're, we're gone. Well, so thanks everybody more, for celebrating. Four more years. years yeah. Four more years. Do we have our volunteers? All right, come on up. Hello. All right, um, can you guys tell me your names? Valerie. Hi, uh, Van from Washington. All right, and Van, you had something you wanted to say? Yeah. Um, Valerie? Oh <laughs> You're who I can't let go of. <laughs> I love you more than I love NPR. <laughs> Um, did, did she say yes? She said yes, yes right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Congratulations. And thank you to our partners, WAMU. You can support this podcast by supporting them, your local public radio station. And a huge thank you to all the staff at this beautiful theater, the Warner Theater. And we couldn't have done it without Allie Prescott, Jessica Goldstein, and Ellen Jorgensen from the NPR events team. This show and the podcast are produced by Barton Girdwood, Barbara Sprunt, and Chloe Weiner. Our social engagement editor is Brandon Carter, and our audio engineers are Andy Huther and Natasha Branch. Our editors are Shirley Henry, Mathani Maturi, and Eric McDaniel. Thanks to Lexi Shapittle, Dana Farrington, Brandon Carter, and Elena Burnett. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the campaign. I'm Asma Khalid. I also cover the campaign. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and I also cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. And thank you, Washington, for being with us for the NPR Politics Podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.